This episode is a read-through of Conscience Freed by Shin Chan Kwan. Pastor Kwan discusses matters of faith, spiritual bondage to sin, the heavy burden of religion from which we must be freed, and his own personal journey in coming to realize the truth of the gospel. Conscience Freed by Shin Chen Kwan Narrated by Alex Taylor Published by The Word Forum Part 1 What the Bible Says What is faith? Many churchgoers these days seem to misunderstand the word faith. As a result, even though people claim to believe, it is clear they are plagued by doubts and inconsistencies. The moment a person comes into possession of true faith, all these problems come to an end. There is a close connection between faith and rest. As soon as a person finds faith, his spirit finds perfect rest in God. Many people experience inner struggles and anxieties despite their claims to faith, and yet they are not aware of the contradictory nature of their situation. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. I wonder how many churchgoers have truly found their spirit, that is to say their conscience, resting in God. When a person is totally exhausted by the cares of this world, it is clear evidence that he has not yet met the Lord and is therefore not really trusting in Him. A person who has faith in God abides in Him, enjoying as His very own everything that is in the Lord. In the Lord's sin, death, and everything else that appertains to the individual comes to an end. This is but a short explanation of what it means to rest in the Lord. Yet, why is it that many people who say they believe carry a greater burden of anguish in their hearts and live a more wearisome life than they did before believing? It is because they are making a great effort to believe rather than actually believing God in their hearts. Perhaps you too are living such a burden life, thinking to yourself, how much longer do I have to go on like this? It seems I will go to hell if I stop believing it. But it takes so much effort to believe. I would probably be better off if I had never started believing in the first place. It is important to understand that such a state of heart is an indication that a person does not actually believe at all. A nursing child is totally dependent on his mother. Although the child may not be aware of it, Everything the mother has is his to enjoy. The child possesses everything in his mother, and he does not need to worry about anything for himself. This is faith. If a person has faith, he finds rest and peace in his conscience and no longer worries about his own welfare. Such is the salvation of the Spirit. With faith such as this, a new relationship with God is established. Through faith, the individual disappears in God and is filled with all that is of God. God is Spirit. What does it mean to worship God? Worshiping God is serving God. There is one matter that needs to be brought to light in this respect, and that is the fact that God is Spirit. In John chapter 4, verse 24, it says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
The important point here is that man lives in a physical body, but God is spirit. So how can man, who is in the flesh, properly serve God, who is spirit? There are many problems that lie within the flesh. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, the Apostle Paul referred to the flesh as the body of this death. The flesh carries death with it and abides in death. This is why the Apostle Paul also wrote, For to be carnally minded is death. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. How can this flesh that abides in death worship God, who is spirit? God is spirit, which means that he does not exist in the flesh, and neither does he have any other kind of physical form. Since God is not a physical being, he is not concerned with external appearances. Man, however, exists in the flesh and tries to serve God on the basis of the inclinations that flow from his flesh. As a result, man quite naturally devises his own elaborate religious rites and ceremonies, believing that such are required in the worship of God. Thus, the world has witnessed the emergence of various religions that have no connection with God, who is spirit. It is when people attempt to worship the invisible God in some kind of visible form that idolatry begins. In various places in the Bible, we come across phrases such as, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I judge no man, according to the flesh, and others that tell us that God shows no partiality in terms of external appearances. These words hold a very deep significance. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 4 very carefully, you will see that God is the same God who saved Israel out of Egypt and the same God who spoke on Mount Horeb. Since God is invisible, He told us not to make any kind of graven image. Herein lies the root of the second commandment. When we worship the invisible God, the God who is spirit, we are not to make any kind of graven image or devise any form of rituals, rites, or structured systems. So the question still arises as to how man who is in the flesh can worship God who is spirit. Since God is spirit, he can only be served in spirit. There is no other way. In the image of God The Bible says that God created man in his own image. See Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. God is spirit and therefore cannot be worshipped by or have fellowship with a being that has no spirit. This is why God created man in his own image. The image of God does not refer to man's physical body. It refers to the spirit that dwells within this body. Once again, God is spirit and not flesh. Of all the creatures in the world, man alone possesses a spirit. This is because man alone was created in order that he might be able to have a relationship with God and worship Him. The reason animals cannot worship God is that they do not have a spirit. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It is the spirit within man that enables him to know God. The problem arises, however, when people whether they believe in Jesus or not, do not understand the Spirit. Even those who think there is a Spirit within man do not really know what that Spirit is. 
Some erroneously assume that their spirit is their personality as expressed in their actions. They try to approach God through their intellect, emotions, or will, all of which are aspects of their personality. This, however, is absolutely impossible. Some people acknowledge the existence of God intellectually and mistakenly think this is faith. Some base their belief on emotions. They are excited by certain religious activities and take this as an indication of their faith. This is actually nothing more than a form of mysticism. Some people resort to willpower as they make up their minds to believe and attempt to put into practice what they read in the Bible. Any success they may have is only the result of strength of will. Such is a religion of resolution. People who base their faith on these various aspects of their personality do not realize they have not yet found the true way to worship God, who is spirit. The conscience, the activities of the spirit. An intellectual acknowledgement of God's existence, a mystical faith based on emotional experience and or a determination to believe through strength of will, do not resolve the inner conflicts and problems deep within man. Attempts at faith such as these are a clear indication that the individual has not yet met with God and therefore has not yet found the fundamental solution. It is through the conscience that we can know we have spiritual contact with God. The conscience is different from the personality or the heart. When I try to do something wrong, my conscience acts as a prosecutor that accuses, judges, and condemns my action. Such activities of the conscience are the work of the spirit within man. Therefore, even though you may have faith such as mentioned above, based on intellectual knowledge, emotions, or volition, you still will not be able to enjoy true peace in your heart. In order to be able to worship God who is spirit, the spirit of the individual needs to receive and be liberated by the light of God's truth. The problem is that man's spirit has become contaminated by sin and, as a result, is dead. This is the greatest and most lamentable problem facing mankind. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. This is a reference to the state of the spirit, which is dead, having become contaminated by sin. When the conscience of the individual is troubled because of his defiled spirit, it is an indication of the contention between that person and God. The moment Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his spirit died. Adam's conscience began to trouble him as shame, conflict, and uneasiness arose within him. It was to conceal their troubled consciences that Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. This action symbolizes religion. When Adam heard God's voice, however, he confessed that he was naked even though he was wearing the covering he had made. See Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 through 10. Religion is man's efforts to conceal his troubled conscience, but these efforts are of no avail when exposed before the voice of God, and they cannot cover man's naked shame. If man is to serve God, his spirit must be made alive, and he must be rid of the anguish in his conscience. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, it says, 
Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, and in verse 23 it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. In other words, our spirits need to be washed clean through obedience to the truth. This is what it means to be born again through the word of God. In John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 17, it says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The Spirit is sanctified or cleansed through the word of truth. This is what is meant by being born again. It is only by being born again in this way that our conscience can have a taste of freedom. Pangs of conscience are an indication of a defiled spirit. When the conscience is troubled, it is because the spirit is fettered by the chains of sin. Nevertheless, when the light of the truth shines through, the chains of sin are broken and the filth of the spirit is cleansed. Salvation, or being born again, is a matter of the conscience being set free from the chains of sin. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 Only a good conscience will go in search of God and wish to approach Him. It is only with the clear conscience that we can meet with God. The flood at the time of Noah is a foreshadowing of salvation. Let's consider the waters of that flood. Noah's ark floated on the surface of the waters, and thus the eight members of Noah's family were saved. The significance of baptism by full immersion is also revealed here. Baptism does not signify the removal of dirt from the flesh. It represents the cleansing process that has taken place in the spirit. It signifies that the conscience has been made clean, baptism not of the flesh, but of the spirit. True baptism takes place when the spirit is cleansed and the conscience is clear, having been freed from sin. It is in such a state that the spirit is able to worship and serve God. Magnificent ceremonies and sanctuaries, pious attitudes and postures, Unnatural gestures and grandiose religious rites may present a certain physical purity, but such purity of the flesh does not make it possible for us to approach God. It is only with an undefiled spirit and a clear conscience that we can come close to God. No matter how pure a person's actions may be, if he has not been saved, his spirit, that is to say his conscience, remains defiled. This is because man is not able to behave in such a way that everything he does is perfect. Since man is unable to purify his conscience through his actions, God gave the gospel to the world, the gospel which purifies through the truth. This truth is not a law of actions, but the law of grace. Such is the gospel of the truth. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23-25 through 25. When the words of the gospel penetrate the spirit, that is, the conscience of the individual, and that person comes to realize the truth, he or she is able to serve God. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, it says that the arrangement of temple worship in accordance with the law of Moses is symbolic for the present time, and the gifts and sacrifices offered according to that arrangement cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, the offering of a goat or a sheep in the temple according to the sacrificial laws of Old Testament times is but a metaphor and cannot perfect the conscience. Therefore, the true sacrifice must be offered. Jesus Christ is this true sacrifice, which is able to perfect the conscience. When a person comes to believe in Him, his or her conscience is made perfect. Dear Reader, can you claim with confidence that your conscience is completely clear with not the slightest speck of dirt or spot of cloud defiling it? Isn't your conscience at conflict with God? Is your conscience not troubling you in the slightest? You cannot stand before God until your conscience is totally clear. If your conscience is not clear, it means sin is forming a barrier between your spirit and God who is spirit. This means there is no light in your spirit. Your spirit is lost, wandering in the darkness on this side of death. It has not yet tasted the resurrection on the other side. That is to say, you have not yet been born anew. The liberation of the conscience is what is meant by being born anew or born again. This is the salvation of the Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of the soul, or more precisely the Spirit, is the liberation of the conscience. This is accomplished the moment a person comes to realize the truth. Therefore, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Have you come to a realization of the truth and found peace in your conscience? Has your conscience been liberated from the pangs caused by disobedience to the truth? In John's Gospel, we read, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 9. The truth is not something that enlightens a person's reasoning. It is a revelation that enlightens the spirit and sets the conscience free. The truth is revealed to man, thus releasing the spirit from its chains. Agree with your adversary. Jesus said, Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. These words present a metaphor for the path of man's life, a path along which man, as the accused, is being dragged by his adversary. The adversary is man's conscience, which acts as the prosecutor. While you are on the way with him refers to the time before you come to stand before the judge, for example, the judgment seat of God. In other words, it refers to the course of man's life. 
These words apply to everyone who is born into this world. This is just as it says in 1 Kings, I go the way of all the earth. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2 The judge is God, the Lord of the judgment, and the prison refers to hell. The Bible tells us to agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, before you arrive at the judgment seat. This means that we are to be reconciled with the accuser within us, our conscience, while we are still living in the flesh, either before we die or before Jesus comes again to this earth. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. The judge is waiting for us at the court, but if the prosecutor drops the lawsuit, the judge cannot pass sentence against us. Agreeing with your adversary, that is, your conscience, means coming to a realization of the truth and thus being freed from your sins. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. In other words, anyone who is troubled by his conscience will have to face the final judgment. From one corner of your conscience you hear the voice of the accuser telling you, that's wrong. That's a sin. That was a lie. While from another corner, you hear the voice of the defense eagerly trying to justify your actions. These two voices are fighting with each other. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God said to Cain, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Man cannot escape from the voice of his own conscience as it accuses him constantly before God. Cain was afraid of God hearing the voice of his conscience, so he fled from the presence of God. Cain's descendants also tried to block out the accusing voice of their conscience, and so they made lyres and pipes, cultivated the land, and began to forge implements made of bronze and iron. These days, people employ all kinds of measures in their attempts to flee from the accusing voice of their conscience. They throw themselves into the pleasures of this world, they seek the glory of this world, or they try to hide themselves away in the midst of battles and wars. Yet their consciences remain as uneasy as ever. They look for ease and comfort, but they cannot find it. They seek happiness, but without success. Pilate washed his hands of Jesus' crucifixion. Judas threw the thirty pieces of silver down in the temple and went and hanged himself. He was unable to bear the agony in his conscience. The moment Judas saw the innocent Jesus condemned to death, his heart was released from Satan's grip and his conscience became active once more. Similarly, Many people today commit sins and then employ various methods in order to defend themselves and hide from the accusing cry of their conscience. Then they push the memory of their sin deep down into an obscure corner of their heart. As the memory of the sin fades away, they do not think about it anymore 
and they carry on with their lives as though nothing had happened. For some people, the memory of such sins returns when they go to gatherings such as revival meetings. Then their hearts begin to trouble them, and they weep floods of tears. Such tears may be an expression of repentance, but they may also be used as a person's attempt to justify himself. There is nothing wrong with weeping over your sin, but then Satan comes along and tells you that now everything is all right since you have wept. Thus you are reassured and feel better. But that sin is actually still there, hidden away under a covering of fig leaves. People sing the hymn, Weeping Will Not Save Me, but do not really give much thought to what these words mean. They pray, often in floods of tears, and then they sing this hymn. In the meantime, their sins are piling up in a secret storehouse. The prophet Jeremiah was referring to this secret store of sins when he wrote, For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 22. Sins cannot be washed away with soap, and neither can they be washed away through any kind of religious rites. Many people do not realize that the sins that stand between God and their conscience cannot be washed away with detergent soap or religious rituals. Every sin you commit goes before God, who is spirit, and there it remains even though it is out of human view. At the same time, those sins taint your conscience, that is to say your spirit, through which you need to connect with God. Suppose two people fight and one slaps the other across the face. Even though the person who deals this blow may soon forget about it, the one who received the blow will remember it for a long time. The sin will lurk deep in his heart as he waits for a chance to take his revenge. A sin once committed does not just disappear. It remains before God. Man's spirit also stands before God, but sin gets in the way, preventing him from drawing near. Sin is a violation of God's law. Therefore, any actions we have committed that have troubled our conscience, even in the slightest, have been quietly noted in God's records. Even though we may have forgotten what we have done, those actions that have thus been recorded will be brought up for judgment before God who judges the secrets of all men. The Absolute Justice of God some people think that God will only judge the big sins and will overlook the smaller ones out of the kindness and generosity of His heart. We must remember, however, that God is perfect, pure, and holy. He is so meticulous that He even numbers every hair on our heads, and He knows the falling of every sparrow. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, but whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Then in verse 26 he said, You will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The Greek word translated here as the last penny means the smallest accountable fraction of the lowest denomination of currency. Jesus was saying that even the smallest sins must be paid for, and if they are not, the sinner is destined for eternal residence in hell. 
it is useless to argue as to whether hell exists or not. Even those who say it does not exist are destined to end up there. The truth cannot be altered by the opinions of men. Hell is the place where God's absolute justice sees its final fulfillment. In this world, God's justice can only be fulfilled in the cross of Jesus Christ. Hell is the place where God's justice will be carried out upon the spirits and flesh of those who remain outside the redemption of the cross while in this world. No matter how small a sin may appear to be, it cannot escape retribution in hell. This is what is meant in the Bible when it says, The dead, those who were not saved, were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. They were judged, each one according to his works, and were cast into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verses 12 through 14. Anyone who has not made friends with his opponent at law, that is, with his conscience, will be accused by his conscience and judged accordingly. The charges will be dropped against those who have made friends with this opponent at law, and therefore they will not be judged. In John chapter 3 verse 18 it says, He who believes in him is not condemned. On the other hand, a person whose conscience has not been liberated will be condemned to hell. There, the severity of his punishment will depend on the sins, both great and small, that he has committed while living in this world. God is just and fair even towards those who are condemned. Judas Iscariot was so tormented by the pangs of his conscience that he killed himself. Hell is the place where the flames of the conscience burn fiercely. In hell, the fires of the conscience burn at an intensity that matches the extent of the sins of the individual. These fires are different from the fires we know in this world. The fires of the conscience in hell never burn out. The burning fires of the conscience will be more than anyone can bear. If man had not known good and evil, everyone is a descendant of Adam, the man who ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In eating the fruit of this tree, man came to know good and evil. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's think about these words. If Adam ate the fruit, he would come to know good and evil, and when this happened, he would die. Adam did indeed eat the fruit, and he died. His physical body became subject to death, although it was some time before this physical death actually occurred. Yet there was something that died the moment Adam ate the fruit. His spirit died. The death of his spirit did not mean that his spirit disappeared. It meant that his relationship with God, who is spirit, was cut off, and his spirit became fettered. At the same time, a sense of fear and shame before God entered his heart. This was the death of his spirit, the anguish of his conscience. This came about as a result of his coming to know good. How about you? Isn't your conscience troubled because of your knowledge of what is good? Dogs, pigs, and other animals do not know what is meant by good. As a result, they experience no pangs of conscience or feelings of fear arising from their actions. 
Even though a lion may tear off a person's arm and eat it, a dog may bite someone, or a cow may eat someone else's grass, none of these animals experienced pangs of conscience. This is because they do not know what good is. You, however, have a spirit. You are a descendant of Adam, and, as such, you know what good is. Consequently, your spirit is dead. Your conscience troubles you, and you experience fears. This is because you know good, but your conscience sees no good in you. You find that a conflict arises within you as a result of the disparity between what you know to be good and what is reflected in your conscience. Adam attempted to hide this disparity by sewing fig leaves together to make himself loin coverings. In this way, he was trying to conceal his conscience. Here we have the origin of religion. All religions are man's way of attempting to cover the shame in his conscience. Although this may not be true in all cases, Christianity today is making a tremendous effort to conceal man's troubled conscience. It does this by means of activities such as prayers that lack true peace and liberation, hymns that constitute mere formality or are sung from the emotions, sermons that appeal only to reason, feelings, or the will, elaborate ceremonies carried out in magnificent church buildings and educational and social programs. Try asking yourself if you have ever found true peace and happiness in your conscience by participating in any of the above-mentioned activities. Have you found real satisfaction deep down inside? Have you ever felt truly grateful to God in your heart? Have you found true rest, a rest that never fades or changes? If you have real assurance in your conscience that you have made peace with your adversary, any formalities and activities that you may take part in will be of significance. If you do not have such assurance, however, the moment you hear God's voice you will find yourself standing in the same position as Adam, clothed in fig leaves but trembling with fear. Even though Adam was wearing the loin coverings of fig leaves, he said that he was afraid because he was naked. These days, people talk of their experiences of speaking in tongues, faith healing, trembling sensations, a sudden warm feeling, and so on, and yet the conflict deep down in their hearts remains unresolved. Why is this? It is because they have no light in their spirit, and their conscience has not been liberated. All of their experiences are just like Adam's fig leaves. Your standards of what is good, based on your own sense of judgment and refined character, may be of value in society, but this good is nothing more than Adam's good which arose as a result of his eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Taking this concept of good as their standard, people discuss faith and come up with religion. They discuss life and come up with existentialist philosophy. They discuss ethics and come up with a system of social moral standards. And they discuss politics and come up with socialism and communism based on atheism. Man also examines the Bible in the light of his own concept of what is good and comes up with all kinds of humanitarian theology, intellectualism which ignores the experience of being born again, or views of faith that have nothing to do with the spirit. All of these fall short of the goodness that is revealed by God and result only in the subversion of the truth. Only the cross can stand before God, and the cross negates everything that originates from man. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 Man cannot know God through his own worldly wisdom. It is when man tries to apply his own wisdom that he deviates from the truth and heretical teachings arise. All of these belong to the sphere of religion and are nothing more than fig leaves. Liberation from Religion The true gospel is liberation from religion. Religion is an attempt to appease the troubled conscience while it is still in bondage. The gospel brings liberation to the conscience. When Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, he was offering liberation to the Jews who were struggling under the burden of a troubled conscience and the yoke of the rites and laws of their religion. The law had become their religion, yet God had given them this law in order that they might come to realize that they were sinners. The Bible tells us that the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, and describes it as the elements of the world, Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Jesus came into the world in order to free us from this tutor. This is the gospel. Adam and Eve made loin coverings for themselves out of fig leaves, but they still felt uneasy and afraid. So God himself made garments of skin for them. See Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. This was the liberation that God gave to them. This is the gospel. The light that shines on the Spirit. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath, we finish our years like a sigh. Psalm 90, verses 8 through 9. All your secret sins, and even the actions that you consider to be good deeds, will be exposed in the light that shines from the face of Jesus Christ. Have you ever pictured yourself standing under God's wrath as the course of your whole life flashes before you? If you have, you will have discovered that man, because of his sin, is doomed to destruction when he stands before God. When your conscience is frankly exposed before God, you will discover that you have no grounds at all for putting your trust in yourself. Nothing becomes new until the light of the truth shines upon it. We too cannot become new or be born again as a new creation until the light of the truth has shone in our hearts. D.L. Moody, Charles G. Finney, John Wesley, John Bunyan, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and many other men of faith before us all experience this new birth. It is therefore difficult to understand why so many churches today seem to deny the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit and the born-again experience of the individual. There are those who acknowledge from a doctrinal point of view that a person must be born again, but they claim that being born again is some kind of mystical experience or a matter of the refinement of a person's physical actions. Generally speaking, the true experience of spiritual birth seems to be little known, yet so many churches teach people that they are going to heaven, saying, Peace! Peace! When there is no peace! Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. The Bible does not deceive people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Bible also says, 
The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. And, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, for the faith which was once for all, it did not take place over a long period of time, delivered to the saints. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. If you have doubts and do not have true peace in your conscience, yours is not true faith. The Bible is truth. The Bible describes salvation as the purification of the spirit, the perfection of the conscience, and the good conscience's quest for God. The Bible is the immutable Word of God. In Matthew's Gospel it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. The words of God need to be accomplished not only in the history of mankind, but also in your spirit, in your conscience. In Psalm 107, verses 19 through 20, it says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. If the light of the word of God has never freed your conscience from the anguish and fear caused by your sin, you cannot see God. In Revelation chapter 21, it says that nothing unclean shall ever enter the kingdom of God. Set yourself before the eternal question. Man's life is but a brief moment in time, yet that brief moment is full of complex problems that have a serious bearing on us. Within the Christian religion alone, there are many denominations, each claiming to preserve the true Orthodox faith. Each of these denominations has its good points as well as its shortcomings. Generally, when outsiders look at these different denominations with the aim of distinguishing whether or not they are authentic and can be trusted, the points considered are matters such as the number of members, extent of growth, and prosperity. Do you think such matters hold any sway from God's point of view? Do you think God is concerned with outward appearances? How much attention do you think God gives to denominational distinctions? These are not the matters that come under God's consideration. For God, the question is the state of the spirit and the conscience of the individual. Everything has its roots in eternity. When temporal things are extended into eternity, and all the aspects of your present life are seen in the light of the infinite, how many of them will retain any significance? You may study the truth with all of your academic ability, but nothing that you learn in this way will be of any use to you in solving this problem. Of course, it is of some significance and value to study orthodox teaching, but unless your studies lead to the establishment of eternal life within you, what you have learned is not the truth. The truth is reality, and reality is fact. The calorie count and analysis of the ingredients of a meal may be scientific truths, but these do not become the truth as applied to you until you actually eat the meal. Only then can the food supply your body with the nutrition it needs to maintain its physical health and strength. It is only when you actually eat the food that its contents become truth in you. Just knowing the theory is not enough. The cross is a fact, not a theory. If this fact does not take effect in your conscience, you may know the doctrine, but you will not have the truth. Has your conscience ever been liberated by the truth of the cross? 
Has your life ever been through such a complete change? I'm not talking about a change that is brought about by human discipline or determination. Has your conscience ever been liberated from the bondage of sin? Perfect and no longer ashamed. Do the words of hymns truly flow from your heart? Words like, Free from condemnation, God is my salvation. Everything is changed by Sevilla de Free Martin, 1866 to 1948. And, Far away in the depths of my spirit tonight rose a melody sweeter than psalms. Wonderful Peace by Warren D. Cornell, 1858 to 1901. When you recite the Apostles' Creed, do you truly, with all your heart, give glory and adoration to the one who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty? When you say these words, do the truths within them give rise to a deep gratitude, joy, and hope within you? Perhaps you believe in the Holy Spirit and know about the true fellowship of the saints, but do you also know what it means to have true fellowship with God? Ask on your knees before God who is spirit and ask in your conscience whether you are living for the sake of your flesh or for the sake of your spirit. It is a big mistake to live your life trying to preserve your flesh while completely ignoring your spirit. You need to realize that you cannot preserve your flesh. God alone is able to do that. In John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 28, it says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Doesn't the reason you are struggling so much now, trying so hard to preserve your own flesh, lie in the fact that you have not yet become God's possession? If you were truly His, wouldn't He watch over you and keep you?